Georgia's DBHDD is urging people to ask a pharmacist about getting naloxone for their first aid kits at home or work. No prescription is needed. Naloxone can rapidly reverse an opioid overdose and restore breathing. Opioidresponse.info. I'm glad you're all here for Political Rewind today. Thanks for being with us. I'm Bill Nygut. i uh, got a lot to talk about with our panel. Before I introduce them, just I want to make one comment about uh, something that happened at the very tail end of Political Rewind yesterday. Um, Representative Ginny Earhart was on the show for the first time yesterday, and I was really glad that she was here. She added a lot to our conversations about legislation that she was involved with during the session and uh, some of the other things we discussed on the show. At the very, very end of the show, um, I said to her, uh, you sent me a note saying that you'd like to talk about decorum and how you feel there's a lack of decorum uh, at the legislature these days. So I gave her a minute to talk about it. She felt that the lack of decorum came from the Democrats. Uh, She didn't cite any Republicans. I've got no problem with that opinion. But she made a remark. She stated as fact something that we've been looking at. She pointed out the fact, she said it was a fact, that there were Democrats who would not stand and put their hands over their hearts for the Pledge of Allegiance. We didn't have time to pursue that. That happened at the tail end of the show. This morning, I kind of made a, I made a number of calls to reporters and others to ask them if they were aware of this happening because I thought it was a startling uh, a comment to make and if it was true it was something that probably should have gotten more attention than it than it would have if it wasn't true. Um, we couldn't find any reporters who witnessed that. Uh, Ginny Earhart cited an example when we reached out saying uh, there was one Democratic legislator. I'm not going to name that person now because we've been trying to get a hold of that person uh, to find out what their response is to having been named by Earhart. Um, But I wanted to mention it today that we, when it comes to opinion, We love the fact that our panelists have a variety of opinions, don't necessarily agree with one another. But when they state things as fact, we always want to check and be sure that what they're saying is accurate, particularly when it's something as incendiary as that was. So we'll keep looking at it. And I'm hopeful that the legislator who she named will get in touch with us. But I wanted you to know we're looking at that. And so far, we haven't seen much evidence uh, that that's the case. So we'll stay on top of it. Uh, The suggestion was, Kevin Riley, you're joining us today, essentially that they weren't as patriotic as the Republicans, I think. And eh, I'm a little... I get concerned about that kind of comment. Well, I just say bravo, Bill. It's great to be here, and uh, I'm here with our favorite, my favorite fellow panelists whenever I do this show, which I'm looking forward to, as always. But I say bravo because, uh, you know, it's important. Obviously, at the AJC, we're in the business of running things down, finding out what really happened, what's really going on, what someone really said. And I think that there, there need to be places in our media environment where that is done and what where the truth really matters. And so I applaud you, and I hope you can get the answer to that question. Kevin Riley, the editor of the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, he's here with us on uh, Tuesdays. You know, a lot of what this is about, uh, you, you all either on Facebook or send me emails, uh, you, you get upset because you're passionate about politics when you hear some of our panelists expressing opinions you don't agree with, and you look to us to somehow... Uh, take up for your cause. But my attitude is, you're all smart people out there. You hear what the opinions are expressed on this show, and you will make judgments on your own about what you think about the panelists who made a given comment, whether you share or disagree with their opinion. Uh, And that's, to me, one of the things I love about the show. So I don't like the idea of questioning a panelist's opinion I do like it when we want to check facts. Theron Johnson, Democratic consultant, uh, you're with us today. I'm really glad you're back on the show. You've worked with everybody from 
President Obama in his uh, reelection campaign in the South. You've done a lot of work with uh, you, you did a lot of work with Kasim Reed. You're working to help Keisha Bottoms, the mayor of uh, Atlanta right now. I'm glad you're with us. It's good to be here. And I promise Jackie and Kevin to be as factual as I can. <laughs> <laughs> Jackie Gingrich Cushman is also here. She's a uh, a conservative columnist. I'm just looking at your most recent columns the other day. I want to. We'll talk about one of them in which you say your hope. You hope that 2020 is about hope, not fear. I, I'm sure we would all love that here in this room, but I really <laughs> would love to see on both sides, um, on both sides, Republicans and Democrats, talk about what they hope for the country, what we can build and do together. Versus scaring people to go out and vote. So All right. That's uh, my hope. Yeah. People can read you. I always go to you by going to your website at JackieCushman.com because it has even more information. But there is a click through there to your columns. You're also on Town, on Town Hall, Hall exactly. is the other way that people get to you. Um, hey, I want to throw something out to you, Theron, and then let everybody weigh in on it. We didn't. Uh, you were all talking about it before we went on the show. When is Joe Biden? You're a, you were an Obama guy, so Biden must be calling you, telling you, telling you when he plans to announce. Yeah, are you gonna have him come here to do it, there? <laughs> so <laughs> I'm I am hearing that uh, Uncle Joe uh, is thinking about releasing a video tomorrow. Yeah. And then sort of doing an official announcement on Thursday. Um, he's hired probably anywhere between eight to ten former Obama staffers. Um, and so some of those folks I've worked with, some of them I haven't. So this is the long anticipated mm-hmm. uh, announcement of uh, the candidacy for Joe Biden for president of the United States. I think he comes in with an instant amount of credibility, high name recognition. Uh, what's yet to be seen is his ability to fundraise. Uh, which I think is going to be a big part of his campaign uh, infrastructure. And then more importantly, he comes in uh, after sort of going through a week of sort of um, not really getting off to a good start with some alleged uh, misconduct um, by certain women um, that have been uh, allegedly involved with him on that. But look, we all love Oakland Joe, and I think he's coming. I think he's going to make a big splash. <laughs> Do you think the bumper sticker is going to read, vote for Uncle Joe, Jackie? Oh, I think he'd love that. Look, look, Joe Biden, I have no doubt that for the last, you know, at least, you know, since the last election that he's woken, woken up every day going, why didn't I run? Why didn't I run? Why didn't I run? And to be perfectly candid, I think um, if he had would have had to run, I think he very well have gotten the nomination, and I quite frankly think that we maybe we wouldn't have President Trump today. I mean, he he's a very good candidate. He's very smart. He's been around a long time. I do think and I'll let Kevin speak to this because he was talking about it earlier. But I do think he's going to have rather a bumpy start. But you know, he should have run four years ago. Quite frankly, I think, um, and I've, I've said this, I have to say this at there and every time because I love to give him a hard time. But you know, the um, the candidate last time Hillary is a terrible candidate. She has no, she, you know, she didn't like campaigning. She thought it was should be given to her. Quite frankly, I wasn't surprised when she lost because she was not a good candidate and the DNC shoved her down everyone's throat. So I think this is great for him to be out. It'd be great to see a really great um, process on the Democratic side to see who gets the nomination. And um, he'll be a very strong candidate. Question, Kevin, is how will he play in Georgia and the South? Yeah, I I think that is the question. I mean, of course, as Jackie alluded to, he's got this issue with women having complained about his uh, not sexual harassment, uh, but but rather that he's too that he is overly affectionate, touchy feely, or whatever. I mean, it's hard to even come up with a term for it. The challenge with that, of course, is we know, Bill, members of the media, those stories tend to not get better; they tend to get worse. I mean, anything could happen here, and we are in a different age. Um, I mean, if you go back to the Trump campaign and some of the accusations there that didn't slow President Trump down in his campaign. But, uh, look, I think that Obama association is the key question. So, uh, I mean, Theron would know better than any of us, but I would predict in metro Atlanta, if Joe Biden shows up, he will be well-received. There will be big crowds. But I don't see him you know, necessarily having that same reception in other parts of Georgia. Well, the key here is, is that you saw uh, current mayor, uh, Keisha Lance Bottoms, and former gubernatorial candidate Stacey Abrams sort of give uh, similar but two different versions of their interaction with the former vice president. Mayor Bottoms took more of an endearment approach. She put a picture with the two of them smiling, and they were uh, touching foreheads. 
where uh, Stacey Abrams took more like, hey, she knew the person who sort of felt that she was uncomfortable with her interaction with Vice President Biden, but also definitely defended the former vice president. But to your point about Metro, I think the key for Joe Biden is this. We forget this. Um, Iowa and New Hampshire, which are the two uh, first states in the caucuses, are two of the whitest states in America. And Joe Biden, from representing Delaware for a very, very long time, I think he instantly is able to go to a very familiar uh, electorate there. The key is going to be, Kevin, is not only how he will be embraced in the metro area of Atlanta, but how well will he be embraced in places like South Carolina and Nevada. There is this sort of lingering um, support out there for uh, Joe Biden that's very strong amongst African-Americans. But there are some people who have questioned some of his votes and some of the things with the Anita Hill hearings back in the day when he was going through that. But I think all of that is going to be something that his team has researched, and I'm sure they got an answer about that going forward. You know, Jackie, uh, uh, I don't want to dwell on Biden too much, but you made an interesting comment. You said he was a really good campaigner. Uh, he hasn't been a really good campaigner for much of his career. <clears throat> Excuse me. Uh, he makes he's gaff prone, as you well know. Uh, he, you know, or he, genuine, depending yeah. on how you want That's to. That's what I was going to go yeah. with, Kevin. Thank you. But, but here's what I think: as a Republican, you must watch with a certain delight, which is which wing of the Democratic Party is going to prevail in these primaries. You've got a Joe Biden who has the potential to appeal right. to independents and maybe even disenchanted uh, Trump Republicans, but you've also got the the Elizabeth, um, uh, Elizabeth Warren, right? Warren yeah. wing out there, the Bernie Sanders wing out there, stirring everybody up about Medicare for all. And you must be just thrilled to see this moderate liberal fight going on. Oh, absolutely. I mean, and so it is interesting. I mean, Joe Biden is prone to gas, but as Kevin said, it, and he's very genuine and he kind of laughs at himself. He loves being with people. Yeah. He, he loves meeting people. He, you know, he's kind of like B Bill Clinton that, that he you know, never meets anyone he doesn't like and he connects with them, whoever they are. So, he, I mean, from that standpoint, he's a really good campaigner. But you're right. He's, he's very different. And I think there may be some um, maybe a challenge from an age standpoint, because mm -hmm. I think if you look at the polling and I know we'll get into it later, but especially on the younger voters are looking for someone that's closer to their generation that feel like they can really relate. That's to. why Theron keeps calling him Uncle Joe. Exactly. Right? Is that yeah. it? <laughs> well, it's, the Uncle Joe reference. <laughs> Really, Kevin, you're right. I probably need to stop saying that if I'm going to support him because it goes right into <laughs> what, what Jackie is saying. But Jackie's exactly right. Listen, all the people I've talked to, all the polling has shown that they want someone younger and more energetic. But the other thing is, really quickly, if we see the conversation about uh, the American policy, we get to a point in the nation where we're having a robust discussion about national security, uh, about people who uh, have national security experience. I think there is an opportunity for former Vice President Joe Biden to show some of his expertise by being a vice president, also being on the yeah. U.S. Senate for so long. So we got to kind of wait and see what he can kind of pick his lane. Yeah, the new language him. for that these days is what lane are you going right, to take? Right. And yeah. Biden would have that foreign policy lane. Right. But but I do think a lot of the energy right now, especially in the social media, which is uh, overemphasizes on both sides, on both parties, kind of the, the wings of both parties, is you have this um, kind of young fresh, excited, the far progressive, very, you know, everything free for everybody kind of, you know, um, position. And from a Republican standpoint, I mean, the farther left they go, the happier we are, because that gives us a lot of space in the middle, because in the end, historically, the middle is what's determined the general mm -hmm. election. So I'd love to see, um, a, you know, there's several of them to choose from. I'll let Theron say his, you know, his, his most favorite far left candidate. Um, <laughs> there's several of them to choose from. And I think any of them would be spectacular for Trump to run against. Yeah. Okay. Uh, let's move to another subject. Uh, Kevin, uh, Theron really opened the door for us. He said the question is going to be to see how Joe Biden does raising money. Your newspaper, your reporters over the last couple of days uh, had a couple of really interesting stories about fundraising in Georgia. One of them was an analysis of where money came from in the 2018 election, who was giving to the congressional candidates in this case. And Here's what your uh, folks found out. It was um, uh, Greg Bluestein and Tamar Hallerman, who I think had the byline on this. One of the things they found out is that Democrats were far more likely, and this shouldn't surprise us, but the, now we see data, Democrats were far more likely to raise a lot of money in very small amounts from a great many grassroots people. I think 
they said, I'm looking for the exact figure, that uh, something like, uh, a f- I, I don't have it in front of me. Do you I have think what you're looking for oh. is one-fifth of the contributions yes. collected by Democratic yes. candidates in the state's most closely watched congressional races yes. for, for less than $200. Whereas Republicans raised 4% of their cash from small donors. So what does that mean to you? Well, I do think this mindset of uh, where everybody's got to find a way to let everybody who wants to give, no matter how small amount, they can capture that. You know, that is something that the Democrats, I think, got to work on sooner. Um, I would, I mean, I just have a private prediction, and I'll be interested to see what our panelists think. I think over time, that will sort of even out. We'll have to see what happens. I mean, I get that we generally view the Democrats as the uh, candidate for uh, the little people the and the Republicans often funded by big business. But I, I think that over time, everyone's going to figure out how to capture every dollar that they can because they have to, right? Well, you guys just helped me out because um, one of the things that I always hear Kevin and Jackie and the Republicans say, and you saw the ads, you know, you go all the way back to, to, to John Ossoff, but even in the recent election with Carolyn, Carolyn Bordeaux against Rock Woodall, um, Lucy Metbath against Karen Handel. The Republican said, be aware, all of this big money coming into Georgia, all of these liberals from San Francisco, from New York, and all these places are throwing in this big money to these races. Well, the AJC analysis just totally proved that that fear tactic that Republicans somewhat successfully used in the 7th, but it didn't work in the 6th, is totally not true. What it also shows is is that um, what we have done since really Howard Dean, when he became the uh, chairman of the DNC is that we have mastered the art of the small donations. The, the big beneficiary of that in 2008 was President Barack Obama. And so I think this analysis does, again, two things. One, it pushbacks on this false narrative that the Democrats are the one that's raising all the big money from um, the left wing extremists, the, the people, the Soros of the world. But it shows that Republicans getting more money. And then two, it also reinstates that what we saw two years ago in 2018, so one year ago, which I think we'll see again in 2020, is that we have gone back to the grassroots and as you like to phrase it the small people or the little people now can give money but it's also about having that quantity and that repetition of the donations to go back to those people for bigger amounts later on in your election i got a feeling jackie sees this differently bill let's see what <laughs> <laughs> thank you okay so um first of all the the small donations the democrats have done a better job on but that is there's no just because of that doesn't mean there's a ton of money flow, flowing in for the off race etc from out of from out of state I'm sure Kevin will be glad to give us that because um, that was actually a Bluestein article months ago. Anyway, one of the things that Democrats have done, which is just absolutely, they're ridiculously smart in a lot of ways. And I think a lot of it is, I mean, they're great in terms of their um, thinking about through their, their nominations for primaries. And they actually go out and recruit very well. They do a lot of things very well. I think it comes down to they think globally. They think about trying to work the whole system. And I think Republicans are like, Let's see who shows up and wants to play because we're all about individual responsibility and let's see who can get things done where Democrats are much more structured and thinking about how can we work together and get things done globally. So they have a campaign called, and I'm sure you've heard, I know you've heard it's Act Blue, which is a online donation site where you can go and give small donations, right, to different, primarily Democratic um, candidates. And if you look at the numbers of dollars that have gone through there, over fi- over $500 million went Three. through. Billion Thank dollars yes. raised nationally well, it, by Act Blue in small donations. Exactly. So that's really what's driving these small donations. It's not really, yes, we're going to go out to shopping centers and get $5 from this, that, and the other. It's this online ability to bundle these small donations where people from a Democrat anywhere in the, in the, in the U.S. who go online and go to Act Blue and say, who do I want to give to? And what do they look like? And where, where does the money go? But, but you can, isn't the next step, Jackie and Theron, you weigh in on this too. I mean, isn't the next step after you get these small donations, you've got them and you've captured their email addresses, you've got data about them, then you activate them to go out and uh, canvas for you, vote. It's not just a matter of raising the money. They're building armies, aren't they? Oh, absolutely. But but my point is that they didn't just wake up one day and small donations came flooding in. This is a very very smart strategic play by the Democrats. I'm going to give them credit where credit is due. And they've, they've done a very good job with it. So the, what you're saying, though, right, is the actual money might be less important than activating people and 
getting their emails and and being able to tell the story about uh, uh, connecting all these people. Well, right? and, and I again, I want to go back to pushing back on the re- false Republican narrative. I'm going to stay on message today, Kevin, because again, what we saw <laughs> even most recently between Stacey Abrams and Brian Kemp. Remember, you guys produced the digital ads. You guys wrote about it. It was. Stacey Abrams is tied to all of this liberal money from Washington, New York, California that's flowing into the state. The, the one thing that the Abrams campaign did differently than any other person who's running for, run for state office in the state of Georgia is that she had a combination. She had a confluence of both. She was able to get the national money in big checks. But to, as Bill just pointed out, she totally took advantage of um, websites like Act Blue and others. But more importantly, she activated those people, Kevin. So to your point was is that if someone gives you $25, you now have that person's um, information where you can go back and not only get them to maybe give you $100 or $200, but you also encourage them to go out and get 10 of their friends to basically well, give you more money. And, and, wait, let me let me weigh in on that. Because, um, Stacey, here, the Republican argument about Stacey Abrams, and it continues to this day, Jackie, is... Where's Stacy? You know, there's this fun little uh, uh, messaging that the Republicans have put out because Stacey Abrams has been going around the country giving uh, speeches. And the message that accompanies that is it's all this, you know, she's courting donors are going to pour money into the state. But again, the AJC analysis found that Stacey Abrams during the gubernatorial race raised more than $8.3 million from people across country who gave her less than $100. So it isn't as if there were these Democratic, big, big, deep-pocket donors who were pouring money in. She was activating uh, grassroots Democrats, yes? Yes, but they're from out of the state. So, again, I'm reading from the AJC article, which I will tweet so everyone can look at it. <laughs> I'm just excited um, to have you that, all repeatedly quoting says, the AJC. That says, this is a, um, a November article from last fall that says, Stacey Abrams, who raised most of her record haul from outside of Georgia. Okay, yeah. since the runoff, the state, yeah. the state had the state Democratic Party raised almost eighty percent, seventy nine percent from outside the state. So, I mean, I, I hear what you're saying, but to say it, it's not a, it's, it's, I'm just reading the stats from the AJC, which I know Kevin appreciates. No, what I'm saying, Jackie, you saw the same commercials that I did. Okay, and I and I don't have enough time to go back on my computer, but I'll tweet those out too. We saw Nancy Pelosi's face. We saw Elizabeth Warren. We saw Bernie Sanders. We saw all of these liberals and the message. And again, it started in the Ossoff race. Is that all of this? These big donors, these big donations are going to come into Georgia. I'm actually Bill is making my point, and I think we're kind of saying the same thing. The narrative that I'm pushing back on is to compliment Democrats for basically showing that we can do both. We can raise big money, but also we have mastered the art of raising these small donations, which the AJC article points out. But what I am pushing back on is to hope that our listeners know that those commercials that you saw, those Facebook ads that you saw about this big money with all these big checks and these big bundlers bringing money to Georgia is just simply false. So, so maybe they meant big money as not in big donations, but big money and lots of money. So that there was lots well, of money look, coming here, from small donors. Here's the bottom line. Is, I mean, I think that no matter what, both sides will sort of look at this a certain way. Uh, if the Democrats can tell a story that that lots of people are giving small donations and, and are getting engaged, I mean, you got to tell that story. Um, I think it's probably going to ultimately be a fair criticism to say a lot of money comes from out of state and that will resonate with certain people. Well, here's the truth. If you want to know where really the Republican money is coming from, and, and I uh, you know, think that Greg Bluestein and Tamar Holliman can do a good job in this, I think it's shifted a little bit. But historically, Kevin, in this state, it was all your big corporations. It was all your big lobbyists who got together and bundled a lot of big checks and gave to the, the candidates. I want to compliment, I think, Governor Kemp and what Purdue kind of started a little bit in his way, Senator Purdue. They kind of basically took the big checks, got the big corporations to bundle these big fundraisers. They went to a lot of these nice country clubs around the state of Georgia and got together, mostly white men. Um and now what they've done is they're still doing that because, I mean, if you just look at the money that's being raised for the inaugural. And it's not just on the state level with Governor Kemp. You look at the city leaders who raise money from big corporations. I just think the difference is now both parties, to your point, the messaging is different. I think what totally changed the game for Abrams is, yes, voter registration, voter turnout. But for the first time in a long time, you had a Democratic candidate who had not just enough money to be competitive, 
but enough money and more money in certain ways to actually win. All right, I got to get to a break, uh, but I do very quickly uh, because I want to move on from this topic. There is a companion piece, uh, uh, Kevin. The at the same time that the AJC analysis shows that Republicans have tended here in the state to get money from deeper pocket Republicans out there, the State Ethics Commission, which has now a new director who is a Republican. Uh, and, and uh, you know, he, 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 there are some people who are raising questions about the fact that he wants to investigate Stacey Abrams' campaign. David Amati has now led the commission to decide to raise the maximum amounts that donors can give in different races. You can now give $1,000 more than you previously could in, like, a governor's race, $500 more in a legislative race, and the expectation is, although it may not happen, that this benefits Republicans more than it does Democrats. It's interesting that at a time when we're talking about big money in politics, that our state ethics commission has decided to allow there to be more big money right. in politics. Right. So two, two interesting points. First, some on the commission wanted to reduce the amount of donations, yeah. but by state law, they're not allowed to reduce them. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. yeah. And then uh, the other thing, though, and I give James Salzer a lot of credit. I'll just read right from the story. Thousands of lobbyists, industry associations, businesses, individuals, and political action committees donate as much money as they can. So they're the ones who are going to pay the price. Because if you used to say, I gave the maximum amount, the maximum amount just went up. So you're going to have to give more. Yeah. Right there. And, I, and I'm one of those registered lobbyists, to be fully <laughs> disclosed, for all of our <laughs> listeners. And, you know, I don't have the big money. I think it now goes up from $6,700 to $7,700. So, you know, there's not many candidates that have gotten that much money from me ever. Um, but to your, your point, now it allows the lobbyists uh, to now go back and find a little bit more money. But I do think it's going to benefit everyone. But I think I give the Republicans a slight edge here because especially the incumbents, they're now able to go back and get these big checks even earlier. And so I think it's a very interesting move coming right out the gates for the new ethics commissioner. And All right. I, go sorry, ahead. You make I, the last comment. Well, I was actually with a question for Kevin. I apologize. But when was the last time it was raised? Does anyone know? I think it's been a really long time, uh, and the commissioner points out that other states allow bigger donations, and there's. Uh, but I, that's a good question. I don't know. I don't think it's been raised for a long I, time. For some reason, I think it goes back to like the Zell Miller administration, oh, wow. but so. I don't know that that's true. And we'll be glad to research that for you, Jackie. Just call me, and I'll tell you what <laughs> I've learned. <laughs> All right, I got to get to a break. When we come back, the U.S. Supreme Court has got a couple of cases. One that very specifically. Uh, focuses on Georgia and the other that's going to affect Georgia as it will every other state in the union. We'll talk about that more after this. Hi, I'm Burt Wesley Huffman, Senior Vice President and Chief Development Officer at GPB. Now, a few times a year, we come on the air with traditional fund drives to ask for your support. It's one of the most effective ways to reach you and to cover the costs of the programs that you hear. As we were planning our spring fund drive a while back, we talked about trying something new. What if we just air short messages asking for support instead of interrupting all of the programming? Will we be able to eliminate the traditional spring fund drive? Should we even take the risk? Knowing how often we hear what public radio means to you, we decided to launch GPB Stealth Drive, this less disruptive campaign you've been hearing about. But here's the thing. It will only work when listeners like you support GPB in the same way that you would during a traditional drive. So now it's your turn. Give online at gpb.org or call 800-222-4788. Do it now. And thanks. If you've been watching any of the cable news channels this morning, you will have seen video of a lot of protesters out in front of the United States Supreme Court. People are gathering there because one of the most consequential and controversial, probably the most controversial case the Supreme Court will hear this session is being argued today. Uh, just to simplify it uh, for, for the benefit, it, it's complicated. To make it simple for me and for all of us, uh, the question is, should there be a question on the census about whether the people being enumerated are citizens. The background on this is that Commerce Secretary Wilbur Ross, it's his department that oversees the census, some time ago said he wanted that question on the census. 
And here's the justification. It, there's specific language about it. These statistics, this is from the Census Bureau itself, uh, they've already put the question on their, on their form, uh, but we're not sure it's going to stay there. These statistics are essential for enforcing the Voting Rights Act and its protections against voting discrimination. Knowing how many people reside in the community and how many of these people are citizens in combination with other information provides the statistical information that helps the government enforce the Voting Rights Act and its protections against discrimination in voting. First of all, why does the census matter? The census matters because every 10 years when we take a census, it determines how many members of Congress a state will have. Those numbers shift routinely as the census comes in. Some states lose seats. States like Georgia have been gaining seats as a result of the census. It determines how much federal money will come in for big projects like roads and other important things that the states want to do. So this is a huge, huge question. The critics, Kevin, say that Wilbur Ross worked with Steve Bannon when Bannon was in the White House to come up with this question because they are hopeful that immigrants who may be here legally and some who are here not legally will be afraid to respond to the census for fear that somehow they will be caught up in a roundup of immigrants, and therefore the new census could have a bigger impact on Republicans. It could mean that more rural areas of a state could have a bigger census count than cities where there are large concentrations of immigrants. So there are all sorts of repercussions to this. And the Trump administration is defending their desire to put this on the census there are many groups who are on the other side of this saying this is going to end up causing an undercount that will accrue to the benefit of one party, not the other. Right. And the Supreme Court listened to these oral arguments this morning. Yep. Um, a, a couple other things, too, about this. First of all, the uh, one of the arguments in favor of including the question is that it was on the census. It was asked in the census until 1950. You know what? Mm -hmm. I shared that information with a number of people, including all of you, and it turns out that that's true, but in a more subtle form. It was occasionally on the census. Right. It wasn't a routine question, and it was targeted in very specific ways when they wanted to determine, separate from the full census, how many immigrants separately were living in the country. So in a way, I was misinformed about that until I went back and looked at it, and Jackie's nodding. Right, right. You can read and read and read on this topic, and it is extremely hard to uh, get your arms around, including Congress is actually responsible for the census, but they have passed legislation to give the Commerce Secretary the freedom to conduct it as needed, which is also part of this dispute. So what do you think, uh, Theron? It's a complicated case. It, it is, and it's something that we go through every 10 years. What was very interesting to me, guys, is that when I really sort of did research on this, it looks like the data shows that if this question is put on the ballot, we run the risk of basically about 6.5 million yeah. people undercounted. And that's Census Bureau statistic. Yeah, so this is something that is coming out of Census Bureau. They feel like by putting this question on every, cens every census uh, question on every ballot is going to basically undocument about 6.5 million people. Now, this isn't what I'm not saying, but this is what some of the Democrats are saying, to your point about Steve Bannon. They believe that this is an attempt to basically um, intimidate people, as Bill just kind of talked about. Because think about it. If you're undocumented or if you're not a citizen but you're living here, you're a dreamer who now have become 18 years of age to vote. For our listeners, one of the things that Republicans, I think, sometimes unintentionally but intentionally mislead our, our American people is that if you're – in order for you to get the uh, registration to vote, you have to prove citizenship, right? And so – but if you – Put this question on the ballot. Even people who actually are citizens, but it may be in question or maybe going through a process, they're going to be intimidated to basically be accurately counted. And, in, and to go further, as someone who's worked for two members of Congress, I can't tell you how when it comes down to federal funding, who's going to get grants, um, how do people attract businesses based on the census count. Atlanta was just named as one of the biggest and fastest growing metropolitan areas, I think, behind Dallas and, um, and, and a couple other places based on census data. So it has a intimidation factor to it, but it also has the reverse effect to basically 
harm some of these congressional yeah, districts yeah, and states across here. That's a really good point. Yeah. Businesses rely on census data to decide where they ought to expand. Absolutely. And, uh, but, Jackie, what's wrong with putting a, a, a citizenship question on here? I mean, isn't it perfectly appropriate to want to know who is and who is not a U.S. citizen when you do a census? I, I love the way he like assumes I can make the decision for the Supreme Court. Uh, <laughs> no, so, um, so here, let's, let me back up a little bit and say I think— the, the, Justice <laughs> Jackie, what do you think? <laughs> we already have a Justice Judy, no, thank you. Okay, so um, I think we end up, and I think Theron's right, every 10 years we have we have several battles of whatever happens. And in fact, um, in the 1990 census, there were a lot of issues. 10 million people went uncounted, and 6 million more were counted twice or in the wrong location. So there is reason for concern. So I, I totally get that. And in fact, in 1998, my father filed suit on behalf of the, the, of the House of Representatives uh, against some, using sampling as a process versus full enumeration. So this is... Yes, trivia question for today. I just remember which, which way, exactly. So, but I do think um, I, I don't. You know, so that's a legal question that obviously I'm not qualified to answer, and we'll have to wait and see what the Supreme Court has. But I am concerned that um, I mean, Theron both says that we intentionally and didn't intentionally, but intentionally. So I'm not sure which one he meant, mm-hmm. but I do get concerned that 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 people from from different parties and also the media talk about this, and to, it's not meant to be. It's meant to be a sampling of who's in the country. So I think we need to say. It's fine for everyone to answer this. They should be answering this. We want everyone to answer this. And I, I do get concerned that this, that this focus on, oh, my gosh, oh, my gosh, people are going to be scared, actually makes people scared versus saying, this is just information we're going to use. It is perfectly good for everyone to answer this, no matter what. And I, and what I think the, saying, I'm very yeah. concerned about the message. Well, what you're saying is the census is a census of the people who live in the country. It's not a census of citizens. I don't think that's the requirement. Um, yeah, so that's right. It never has been the, yeah. the requirement. But, but okay, what's complicated this, Kevin, is unfortunately Wilbur Ross was misleading when he expla- tried to explain to the courts why he wanted this question added. He said it was at the request of the Justice Department, which wanted those figures as the as the as the explanation on the Census Bureau form says, so he could deal with uh, possible uh, with voting rights. Mm-hmm. Well, it turns out that's not true. It turns out, and the courts learned this, that Wilbur Ross went to the Justice Department after deciding he wanted this question on the census and asked them to give him a justification. And they came up with voting rights. So that's complicated it. In the lower courts, it's really made a mess of it. I haven't heard the arguments as they came down today. I don't know if you have, but I wonder to what extent Wilbur Ross was part of it. His his story was part of it. Yeah, I, I, what I heard, and I, I you know caught a brief report on radio um, that the justices were generally a little skeptical and seemed to be asking questions that were in support of the government's case. Oh, I think most people really assume that the yeah. gov- that the ju- the court is going to rule in favor of the government and add the question uh, to the census. And they have this. Tight deadline, right? Because they've got to get it's the forms get the printed. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's a challenge. But I, I do think, again, I think we need to remember what the purpose of the census is, and regardless of whether or not the question is on the back end, everyone can and should answer it. And secondarily, you know, I think the challenge, and, and um, Kevin, I'm, I'm, I'll let you elaborate on this because it's actually your point from earlier before the before the um, the show, is that there is concern from the court's perspective they can't. You know, view speculation in the future, what might happen. They have to look at precedent for the long term. So I think this case, you know, they'll have to look at it from a historical case versus trying to guess what might happen in the future if. Right. I mean, who knows what the court will do. But I think that uh, as you, as we watch uh, the Supreme Court now dominated by conservatives, it's a much tougher thing when they're presented with speculative outcomes, which is, in the end, uh, again, I'm, I'm not a lawyer and I don't want to be, but the, the case against including the question is really, a, is really about what could happen or what might happen. Well, but, I think but, the but judges will look askance but, but at that. But as Theron points out, the Census Bureau gave the plaintiffs in this case data that supports their case. 6.5 million people yeah. fewer will be counted, they say. A- absolutely. And then the other thing here, listen, this is something that we've been dealing with since President Trump took the oath of office. And this is a common thread I just want to point out for our listeners. I truly believe that the president wants to do everything he possibly can 
to lead this country in the right direction. But what we've seen time and time again, every single person who's gone to jail, every single person who's been fired, we know now with the Mueller report, he was trying to encourage people to lie, people who have resigned. The problem here, Kevin, is that you have this gentleman, Mr. Ross, who basically is affiliated with Steve Bannon and now went and lied to Congress. And therein lies the perception problem that this administration has had since day one. I mean, we are now talking about locally that if a former mayor worked for a particular law firm that now is under investigation because of a federal investigation, there could be this collusion or this cooperation and there was some type of a, a connection there, which is a valuable thing to actually question. That doesn't necessarily mean that you um, prosecute that person or these people who have been involved. But we can't leave out the fact that the reason why you're seeing sort of this emotional outburst and reaction to this is because of what this administration has done since he's taken office and the connections and the lying of the misinformation, the misleading the American people is where you're seeing this amazing pushback from the American people. As as pragmatic Georgians, uh, immigrant, legal or not, we would want as many people showing up in the census count as possible. Yeah, that that is certainly true. I agree with that. and And I agree, but I agree part of the challenge we have is that when we sit here and people talk about, oh, if the if the if questions added, you know, they won't. I think you, there's a there's a there's a narrative that people are trying to push down that if the questions added, it won't that will keep people from. And I think that narrative can actually lead to that that result. I think we'd be very careful. But it's interesting that that even though that's the concern, that the ACLU has already said that about a third of non-citizens um, census data is actually inaccurate anyway already. So I mean, I do think we have a lot to. I think if we were better off focusing on Every you know, every person counts. Every person counts. Every person counts, regardless of what the questions are. I think that's the message that all sides should be talking about. I will say that now on this statewide radio station. But Jackie, you know who really needs to say that more than anybody is the president. All right. And, and I think that if he were to say what you just said, every he should hire counts. you right now. Okay. And, <laughs> How much and, do you think it's worth? Uh, you know, I think you got to. Yeah, yeah, I think yeah. I'll never be yeah. on the show. Yeah, though. well, when you go to work for the White House these days, you better bring your lawyer with you, right? So, <laughs> so who knows if the salary uh, compensates for the attorney you need? We got to take another break. When we come back, there's the other major Supreme Court uh, uh, announcement. They're going to take up a case in the next session that relates specifically to Clayton County. We'll talk about that. This is Political Rewind. We'll be right back. Now's the time to help make GPB Stealth Drive a success, so you'll continue to hear more programming and less fundraising. But this will only work when you help us raise the funds we'd receive during a traditional on-air campaign. And as you know, that would mean taking time away from the programs you hear. Your support allows GPB to deliver the valuable services you rely on and enjoy. So now is the time. Donate at gpb.org or 800-222-4788. On the next Fresh Air... No, we have divided in three our kingdom. Glenda Jackson is now starring as King Lear on Broadway. Terry talks with the 82-year-old two-time Oscar winner about her life and career. Jackson took 23 years off from acting and spent two decades as a member of the British Parliament. Join us. Fresh Air is this afternoon at 3 here on GPB and online at gpbnews.org. Um, one of the reasons we always like when Todd Ream is on this show is he has facts at his fingertips mm-hmm. that the rest of us just don't. Todd just tweeted that the maximum donation, which we talked about a little while ago, Jackie asked, how often do we change the ceiling? The maximum donation adjustment is generally done every election cycle or two and refers to the consumer price index. I do want to look at that because I was completely unaware of that. Uh, So that's worth uh, checking into. But Todd, thank you. And uh, we appreciate your uh, way in in on that. Um, Let's talk about this case. We talked about it a a little bit yesterday, but we didn't have the chance to get into it more fully because it had just broken yesterday late morning. Uh, The Supreme Court, Jackie, has agreed to take a case. They've three cases, really, one of which involves a firing of a gay man in Clayton County. Uh, The question is... Does Title VII protect uh, gays and lesbians from workplace discrimination? Lower courts have been divided on this. Um, one, one court said yes, one court said no. Now the Supreme Court will take it up. 
so it's a it's a very important case. It won't be argued until next session. They haven't put it on the calendar. But um, here's the question. Are gays and lesbians protected from discrimination or what they see as discrimination in the workplace? Well, and I think, um, and I'm going to let Kevin get the facts because I'm not, I'm not in the media and I don't, don't do investigative <laughs> reporting. Um, but um, I, I do think, especially for the Georgia case, it seems to be a little confusing because the facts in terms of what happened in the investigation and the subsequent firing of the individual, I think, were based on actual um, transactions that happened while he was employed. So I do think that, you know, that there is, that they all have to rule on the, the, the facts of that particular case. And so it'll be interesting to see how they navigate that. And I'm not as familiar with the other two. So, so Kevin? Well, the, the, this involves a case in Clinton County where a guy was fired by the county. He was a child welfare services coordinator, and he says he was fired because he was gay, that he'd gotten good performance reviews, reviews, but when he joined a gay softball league in 2013 and promoted it as a place mm-hmm. for volunteer opportunities, he was fired. But it's a little more complicated than that, and the court really, uh, you know, the court here, the, the federal court um, in Atlanta, dismissed his complaint ultimately, saying Title Seven did not protect him for that reason. So what we have is conflicting rulings, which is why the yeah, there's Supreme a New Court, York case in which the the, the federal mm-hmm. court said yes, the Title Seven should protect gays and lesbians. And of course, we have a conservative uh, you know, court here, and and so now we've got this. But it's important to remember that in the in the 2015 same sex marriage case that vote on the court was 5-4. Well, and that's one of the reasons this is so important, Theron, is that we have not had the Supreme Court take up a case having to do with LGBTQ rights since the gay marriage ruling, and the court now has two new conservative justices, and that for people who want protections is very disturbing. And therein lies the, the pushback that we're hearing. I mean, a lot of people are saying that LGBTQ uh, rights should be protected under the federal discrimination laws. And then I think some people are saying the fact mm-hmm. that Congress is responsible for not only the implementation, but the enforcement of these laws, but they're not being enforced. Darren lies the, the, the question. But I think the other thing to take it a step further is employers now and where we are as a country, you know, it doesn't matter your sex, race, national origin, disability, or anybody's age. These people basically should not be discriminated against in the workplace. And so the question now becomes is what law, to Kevin's point, do you fall over? But I want to just go back that these individuals, these people, they should not be discriminated because of, of, of uh, against the way that they were born or the way that they choose to live their life or their sexual orientation. I think this is a conversation that's going to continue to grow in our country. Jackie? And the challenges, I mean, to Kevin's point earlier, the, in Clayton County, the, the, um, the case here, um, Clayton County, Clayton County issued a statement saying that the gentleman was terminated based on the audit, which disclosed his handling of the funds he was managing violated company policies and procedures. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, you know, so I do think if you look at a case-by-case basis, if if that weighs and that really was the reason he was fired, then you can't even look at the discrimination because that wasn't the cause for firing. It was the I don't, so I think it's a little bit more complicated than sometimes it might seem. Right. I do think that's a challenge because you get into a lot of arcane legal arguments. And at the bottom line, I mean, the, the people who were, who were on the side against, you know, offering this protection are saying, look, the law says on the basis of these things, it does not say on the basis of sexual orientation. And it's up to Congress to remedy that or do something when it is not up to the courts to uh, – to make the law. Well, so, maybe, but the court's taking this one up, and I think that's part of why this is such an interesting case. Uh, if if Title Seven, in its most in its strictest interpretation, doesn't protect gays and lesbians, uh, you could you could of course, who knows? This case won't be argued for months, but just to be speculative here, uh, a court could, in the most narrow way, say, nope. Title VII does not specifically call for protections of gays or lesbians, or the court could decide to get a little interpretive here and decide that they want to protect the rights of gays and lesbians and find a way to do that. The question is, if the court is conservative, with a majority as conservative as we have now, uh, who knows what they'll do. And that's why this case is so interesting, I think. Don't you, Jackie? Oh, absolutely. But again, I think we need to, to I mean, I don't believe there should be discrimination. I mean, if you're, if you show up and you do your job, I mean, you know, 
do your job, be happy, get promoted. But if there are underlying circumstances that you get that you get fired for cause, I think you got to look at where they fired for cause. And so I think I think it is a little more complicated than. You know, just, you it know. is. It is. Uh, but you know what, Theron? Here's why it becomes even more interesting in Georgia than, say, the court case in New York. We don't have any kind of civil rights statute that protects uh, gays and lesbians here in Georgia. So we, we are dependent on what the federal uh, law says. Absolutely. And so the question is, you know, why rely on that a Supreme Court some months ahead when the legislature, should it choose to, could pass a civil rights law for the state of Georgia. And, and that's something that every, I would say probably in the last four years, you know, the AJC and other publications have covered this, is that there have been some attempts by Democrats to introduce civil rights legislation. And believe it or not, there I think there is a growing appetite, as Jackie just kind of explained, to make sure that the Republican messaging around this is that, look, we don't want anyone to be discriminated upon uh, in, in this state and in the workplace. But therein lies the challenge. Until the state of Georgia actually gets this law on the books, we are dependent on the federal government. But I just clearly tried to explain to our listeners that it's really up to Congress to make sure that these federal discrimination laws are not only being created in the right way, but more importantly, being enforced. And therein lies where this court decision is going to be so important. I think what will be interesting about this decision are two things. The first, of course, is with the Supreme Court, there's always this big question of, of whether their rulings are ahead of where we are as a society or whether they're catching up, you know, to society. And then I also think we, big, big moment for the Chief Justice, John Roberts, who has clearly sent a message about not wanting the court politicized. Mm-hmm. And he is going to be the chief justice for a long time, almost for sure. The Roberts Court will be historic. It will be written about. It will be very important to the country. And I just want to see what he does, because as it's turning out, he may be the swing vote. All right. We are virtually out of time for today's show. We had an interesting conversation all teed up we wanted to have. We'll put it off for tomorrow's show about this really interesting poll that Harvard Mm -hmm. Uh, did on uh, the attitudes of young people, young voters today. Uh, I saw Jackie was all set. She's got the whole poll printed out. I do. I have everything out. out. I was going to share it with Theron. <laughs> we're not going to have time to get to it, but tomorrow we're going to have Sam Olins and Jen Jordan here, which should be another terrific panel. It won't be better and than this panel. No, of course no. not. Thank you. But, uh, so we'll uh, put that on the agenda for tomorrow's show. Uh, Jackie Cushman. Uh, again, people can uh, read your columns on Town Hall or at JackieCushman.com. Theron Johnson, we don't say the way we ought to in, in introducing you. You not only work with some important political leaders, but you're the head of Paramount Consulting, the name of your consulting firm. Yeah. For, but, uh, real quick, we do have enough time for this. Are, will you take on uh, candidates in the 2020 cycle, or do you stay back from that? I'm open to it. Um, I think that in some shape, form, or fashion, one of the biggest regrets I had, Bill, and I think I talked to you about this offline, is that coming off our historic re-election victory of President Barack Obama in 2012, uh, I did not get as involved as I should have in the 2016 race. So many of my fellow uh, Obama alumni people, we're going to definitely get involved. We just got to figure out in what capacity. All right. That'll be interesting to watch how that develops. And Kevin Riley, thank you so much for uh, being here with us. I'm glad you're going to be back here uh, next week on Tuesday for more of our conversation. As I said, tomorrow, uh, Sam Olins and Jen Jordan. Jen Jordan suddenly emerging as a star in Georgia Democratic circles. Uh, we'll have her and Sam on the show. Join us at 2 o'clock tomorrow. when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts.